All present computers are mechanical morons. They cannot really think. They can only do things for which they are programmed. But this will not always be true. In fact, um, probably before the end of this century, we will be able to construct computers or artificial intelligences which can go out on their own and develop lines of thought irrespective of any programming and which may in principle be more intelligent than we are. Welcome to voice print identification. It's 
2001. A Space Podyssey. I'm Wes. I'm Brad. Thank you. You are cleared through voice print identification. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. So a lot has happened since we've been gone. We were on Earth and therefore missed out on all the Earth news while we were there because we were at a convention. We've come to find out that the entire Earth is now freaking out about artificial intelligence. So everything that we talked about last week that was in fact recorded at the beginning of April about JetGBT and all of our pessimism, some of the leading figures in the tech industry and in the artificial intelligence industry have come out with a petition to plead for us halt, to please. cease and desist until we figure out what's going on. Yeah, I think a, a ban is absolutely necessary. It's getting out of control. So many different smaller companies even deploying their own AIs. When ChatGPT burst into the public consciousness late last year, its abilities stunned the world. Headlines blared that it was able to pass the bar exam and hold human-like text conversations. It writes computer code, term papers, and even Shakespearean iambic pentameter. It is not just that one program. Google, Microsoft, and many other companies have their own artificial intelligence software. People have been fascinated and frightened. The fright was heightened last month when more than 350 computer scientists and tech executives signed onto a one-sentence statement that said, mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks, such as pandemics and nuclear war. One of the signatories is a man who has been called the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton. Hinton left his job at Google so that he could freely discuss the risks of AI. And that is what I want to ask him about today. Jeffrey, welcome. Thank you. So first, before we get into the bad stuff, I, I want to you know, give people a sense of the, the amazing creativity that produced uh, AI and the, and the thrill you must have felt. So at what point did you start to realize as a, as a professor that you were beginning to, you know, you were getting computers to be able to, to think. So back in 1986, we started using an algorithm that was invented by many different people called backpropagation. And at that point, we could get computers to do a little bit of thinking, um, but it didn't work as well as we hoped. And at that point, we didn't really understand that all we needed was more data and bigger computers. But by about 2006, we had that. And then we started seeing real progress. We started seeing artificial neural networks modeled after the brain, being able to do all sorts of things that conventional symbolic AI had not been able to do, like recognize objects and images, recognize speech, and be able to predict the next word in a sentence. For you, was there a kind of crossing of the Rubicon moment when you realized that uh, computers were just getting so good and so powerful at AI? So I think in 2012, two of my graduate students, Ilya Sutskova, who's now the chief scientist at OpenAI, and Aris Krzyzewski, um, made neural nets that were much better than previous systems at recognizing objects and images. So you'd have a million images with a thousand different kinds of object. And previously, people couldn't do better than getting 25% wrong. And suddenly, Ilya and Alex got 15% wrong. 
and that was a huge breakthrough. It's clear that this stuff was now working much better than previous methods, previous ways of doing AI. When did you start to go from being exhilarated about all this to worrying? Really only a few months ago. So I, I mean, I was always worried about things like um, what would happen to the people whose jobs were lost to AI, and would there be battle robots, and what about all the fake news it was going to produce, and what about the echo chambers being produced by getting people to click on things that make them indignant. Right. Right. Um, those, all those worries I was worried about. But the idea that this stuff will get smarter than us and might actually replace us, I only got worried about a few months ago, when I suddenly flipped my view my view had been that I'm working on trying to make digital intelligence by trying to make it like the brain. And I assumed the brain is better. And we're just trying to sort of catch up with the brain. Um, I suddenly realized maybe the algorithm we've got is actually better than the brain already. And when we scale it up, we'll get things smarter than us. And, and the fundamental reason for that, I, I think you, you, you've said, is that computers learn instantaneously and every computer in the world, if it's connected, learns, learns, you know, gets to know everything, right? So explain, explain that scale of computing power compared to the brain. Okay, so if you learn something, and now you want to convey that to me, what you do is you produce sentences, and I try and figure out how I should change the connection strengths in my brain so that I would produce the same sentences. But there's not that much information in a sentence. So it's a very slow and painful business. Right, right conveying what you know to somebody else. But if you have two different digital computers that have exactly the same model of the world, and one of them sees one document, and another one sees a different document, and they each learn from the document they're seeing. And so if you have 10,000 computers like that, it's like you had 10,000 people all learning from different data. And as soon as one person learns something, Everybody knows it. And everybody has, 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 intelligence is strengthened by that averaging, by the, right? Yes. So, so you, you, it, something actually means theoretically even, human beings could never get to that place. We could never see enough data. It would take us, I don't know how long, yeah. but thousands and thousands of years to see as much data as GPT-4 has seen. We, we just couldn't do it in a lifetime. And so that's at one level, again, exhilarating to think of the, the, the extraordinary power that this computer will have, but worrying. It is worrying because we don't know any examples of more intelligent things being controlled by less intelligent things. I mean, with human societies, you often have dictators who aren't as intelligent as some of the peasants, but that's not a big difference. They're in the same league. But here, these things will get much more intelligent than us. And the worry is, can we keep them working for us when they're much more intelligent than us? They will have, for example, learned how to deceive. They'll be able to deceive us if they want to. Which is what we were talking about. Arthur C. Clarke not only confirms, but echoes directly back to us that the deceitfulness and like the furtive nature that Hal had to take did corrupt him. Mm -hmm. And that was a catalyst for an event that was more taken out of desperation than out of pure malice. Mm -hmm. He likened it to like a criminal being caught in the act. And once that has happened, desperation kind of kicks in mm -hmm. and he never really intended to do harm, but it was a, a 
consequence that I guess was acceptable loss mm-hmm. at that point. What's really crazy is back home, the other HAL 9000 unit that was supposed to be like the sibling mm-hmm. kind of... Yeah, the B model. The touchstone that they could use to make sure that everything was you know, operating properly with the Discovery. Well, it had a psychotic break as well. And it's in therapy. <laughs> so I don't know how did they have to like <laughs> make some kind of crazy uh, chaison. <laughs> right, yeah, like psychiatrist couch for it to sit on for this. But yes, Hal's uh, Earth-based sibling is in therapy after its psychotic break. So Clark describes it in the novel, which I thought was incredible. So one of them gets murdered and the other one gets health care. It's kind of a, <laughs> a nice little mirror held up to society. It's like this is kind of what it's like for you to be in a, a good environment with good health care and you know, a government maybe that cares about you. <laughs> so the heuristic learning method actually worked out pretty well. Too well. Too well. Too well. Or is it even scarier that it wasn't that they were able to mimic the events and simulate the situation of Hal on the ship back at the lab so minutely that it created the same effect? Or is Mm -hmm. it just that any situation after a certain amount of time he would have cracked up? I think so. I think that's (laughs) what it's saying. And and it's because of its maybe not intentfully malicious programmers, but it, it, it was being charted to do things against its own nature. So Right. Yeah. Wow. So it turns out that the only hope we have, according to Jeffrey Hinton, Mm -hmm. is in the programming. Yeah. The best people can come up with, I think, is that you try and give these things strong ethics. The one advantage we have is that they didn't evolve. We made them. We evolved, and we evolved in small warring tribes of hominids. We wiped out 21 other different species of hominid, because we're very competitive and aggressive. And these things don't have to be like that. We're creating them. Maybe we could build them with strong ethical principles wired in. And you could do that with the algorithms. Because I notice notice when you ask ChatGPT a question, say about homosexuality, it gives an answer that is clearly curated in a way to be Thought, to be thoughtful, to be, you know, not, not to reflect every crazy view about it. But, uh, you know, kind of, I would, the, 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 politically correct may be too strong, but it's a sensitive answer. So yes. there is some shaping that takes place. If you ask it, how do you build a nuclear weapon? It says, I won't tell you that. But if you've ever written a computer program, you know that if you've got a program that's trying to do the wrong thing, and you try and get it to do the right thing by putting guardrails around it, it's a losing proposition because you have to think of every way in which it might go wrong. It's much better to start with ethical principles and say, you're always going to follow these principles. But it's going to be hard because, for example, defense departments want robots that will kill people. So that seems to conflict a bit with putting ethical principles in. There is one piece of good news, which is with nuclear weapons, they were an existential threat. And so even during the Cold War, Russia and the United States could cooperate on trying to prevent a nuclear war because it was clearly bad for both of them. And with this existential threat, not with the other threats, but with the existential threat, um, if you take the US and China and Europe and Japan and so on, they should all be able to agree we don't want them to wipe us out. 
And so maybe you can get cooperation on that. And you could put some kind of guardrails in or ethical principles in yes. around that. That's, that's a hope. We don't know if we can make that work, though. This is going to be a real Asimov situation where they're going to have to set ground rules to prevent it from spreading beyond its own. You know, can you imagine this is just like war games or something where mm -hmm. a computer oh, it is. sets off a, a nuclear device? When we have literally the next arms race happening with quantum supercomputing, as yeah. we've been covering on this show for the last several can, months. Can you imagine seeing how accessible AI is? AI terrorism, you know, where you drop in oh, yeah. a, a smart AI that can just turn off the power grids and lock down every mm -hmm. bit of infrastructure, to turn traffic lights off. I mean, could you imagine just in our little town, yeah. like the, the lights going out in a storm causes so many wrecks that mm -hmm. it's almost impossible to get around and they, they could really lock down a, a major city. So when, when you think about the, you know, the concerns about AI, how would you describe them very simply to somebody? What is it that you worry about? So I would distinguish a bunch of different concerns. So there's what I call the existential threat, which is about whether they will wipe out humanity. That's definitely a threat to humanity's existence. The other threats aren't existential in the same sense. The word existential is rather overused. They're very bad, like they'll make a lot of jobs much more efficient by getting chatbots to do it instead of people. There'll be a huge increase in productivity. And the big worry is that huge increase in productivity, which should be good for us, um, will cause the rich to get richer and the poor to get poorer. And that's going to be very bad for society. Um, then there's things like battle robots, where obviously defense departments would like to have um, robots that replace soldiers. That's going to make it politically much easier to start wars. Um, there's fake news where it's going to be very hard to know what's true. And there's the division into these warring camps by the big companies trying to get you to click on stuff that will make you indignant. And so you get these two different echo chambers. So, and um, these are the small problems. Those are the small <laughs> problems. Those are the more immediate, and they're not small problems at all. They're huge yeah, problems, yeah. but they don't involve the end of humanity. So I don't call them existential. Um, and then there's the problem of if these things get smarter than us, which I believe they will, and many AI researchers are now beginning to believe they, they will, and in not too long, like in, you know, not in 100 years. So um, I wish we had a simple solution. Like with climate change, there's a simple solution. You stop burning carbon, and it'll take a while, but you'll end up okay. Um, and it's politically unpalatable for the oil companies. But if you stop burning carbon, you'd solve the problem. Here, there isn't anything like that that I know of. You know, malicious intent is an interesting point because he said something about lying and how they will have learned to lie by now. Yeah. And we've talked about that several times. Yes. And the question is, I was just thinking is, how could it not have learned to lie by now? Because half, if not most, of what we use computers for is to create artificial situations. <laughs> is I mean, maybe it's digital effects, maybe it's Photoshop, maybe yeah, it's multiple recording on... Kind of thing. Or multi-track recording on, on audio. Sure. Maybe it's editing documents, tweaking our Facebook profiles, nameless things that it will have data to the contrary to be able to line up and know yeah. it is incorrect that we are putting out. We're going to have to start really thanking our personal assistants yeah. <laughs> so they don't start 
deleting our contacts <laughs> just out of nowhere. Just maliciously or out of jealousy. Oh, look at this, um, you know, once in a lifetime photo with this celebrity. <laughs> delete, mail. delete. Well, that's you. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to Blackmail. You started out with the, the algorithms on social media and on now all media websites and uh, search engines to to produce a confirmation bias with the results. Even just a query now, SEO is such a huge thing. And curating, therefore, you know, what you're going to watch, what you're going to explore politically, but also and we're not going to the library to browse around. We're not going to, to the record store to flip through and just see what's there and listen to random things. We're right. not, we can't afford to go to the movie theater and just see what's on. And with the streaming services, there's no hope of going through the thousands of titles without it, sorting it some way for you other than just alphabetically with all different kinds of grades and production levels. See, I've noticed once you get to the, the bottom switching to Indian blockbusters. Yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> Have you seen that? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you get some great Bollywood surprises mm -hmm. that yeah. way. But not only is it doing that in a way that we're kind of doing that to ourselves and yeah, we kind of know we're doing that, but it's kind of a necessary way to organize, but it's creating experiences for us and it's doing it dishonestly sometimes because how many times do you see something in an app that you use for media that says recommended for you and it's nothing to do with you. It's just yeah. the newest thing they have out that they want to advertise to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> so. So it was paid to recommend to you and pretend that it has something personal. Fortunately, um, I, or I've got a very niche kind of YouTube mm -hmm. <laughs> algorithm going on that you've seen. You've pruned it down. You've honed it. Uh, well, yeah, they, uh, they will suggest those things. And there is a, a little ellipsis that you can click on and just yeah. say, don't recommend this to me. <laughs> yes. I don't want this channel. And you can even tell them why. <laughs> Which is nice. Which is nice. But the, they're still going to suggest and implement things. The thing that I would be afraid of, especially with companies that are wanting to pay programmers less, they develop an AI that handles their web page, for instance. So now every time that this algorithm develops like a new, easier way to hook somebody, it's going to just update the page and implement a new piece of media or a new way of interacting with the media. and it will change and evolve to a point where I think the lowest common denominator is really going to be most media. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's all going to be middling yeah. to reach as many people as possible. Yeah. They don't like the niche audience. They, they want to hit the huge mm -hmm. general audience and that's getting harder and harder to do. Mm -hmm. Okay. So maybe writing becomes a profession that is obsolete by AI. Maybe, you know, music becomes a profession obsolete by yeah. AI or art or all these other which, things, which are very real possibilities, but it'll, oh, it'll never affect me in whatever vocation you're in. Mm -mm. You know, the studio bosses even thought that. I don't know if they're thinking about the fact that three years ago, Warner Brothers signed a deal for an AI film management system. Wow. Okay, Synaletic Systems is a project management system which basically leverages the comprehensive data of the system and predictive analytics to guide decision making at the green light stage. 
The integrated online platform can access the value of a star in any territory and how much a film is expected to make in theaters and on other ancillary streams. Wow. So you're giving up the judgment of like what a casting director or a, of, of, of a star even. It says yeah. like what's the value of this star? What's the cash value of this storyline? And it will change it and predict it for you. Oh no. It says the system could calculate in seconds what it used to take days to assess by a human when it comes to general film package evaluation or a star's worth. These are people that don't watch movies. That's just, you know. <laughs> just straight up. The, the guy that counters the narrative that this is going to replace humans, take away jobs, he says, Right now, AI cannot make any creative decisions. What it is good at is crunching numbers and breaking down huge data sets and showing patterns that would not be visible to humans. But for creative decision making, you still need experience and gut instinct. Okay, so find me the studio executive who's going to feed everything into this almighty God computer of the movie world that's going to spit out exactly what star and what formula of what story works the best for the cash value of the market right now in each territory of the world. And you are going to, what, go against this system that they just paid hundreds of millions of dollars to license out? I'm sorry. How long do you think the board is going to keep you in that position? No. Where? Are they trying? <laughs> are they even trying to hide this anymore? No. Oof. And this guy, the godfather of AI, go to the end of this interview. <laughs> I'm sorry I'm on a rant with this. Are you going to be spending time on solving this problem? I think I'm too old to solve new problems. I've done my, I've done my bit of solving problems. I, I will help, but I'm planning to retire. Uh, you, leave, you leave us, that doesn't, you leave out the humanity in a lurch. Uh, yeah, it doesn't sound good, does it? Well, maybe your, maybe your students are gonna. I'm, my students are very capable, and many of the people I've worked with are working on this. All right, well. We'll have to, on that slender read, we're going to have to close this out. It's such a pleasure. Can you believe that? I mean, what? Did they have a freaking wheelbarrow for them? What? <laughs> I mean, the just the, it's like, this is exactly like the most predictable, lazy, worst case scenario of what happens in this story is, it's like, how do we get to the third act where the, the guy finds out, you know, the Frankensteinian issue, the Alfred Nobel finds the horror and finds the thing. It's like, no, no, it's like, oh, damn it, we, we screwed up. Well. Uh, too bad. You wanna get some coffee? <laughs> he, he quit Google to tell everybody we're screwed. Not to like, save the world he's gonna he's gonna try to save the world but he's clearly got a very feudalistic version of, of how this is gonna go down so the guy right after that he's interviewing for he's interviewing the new head of the world bank he's coming over from like mastercard or something this guy is great he's he's the first muslim to hold the job from india he's actually maybe they're talking about investing in the developing world infrastructure mm. and and creating less of this poverty um increasing you know poverty that we've been seeing yeah. and and create a, a rising tide for all boats and more of an international <clears throat> humanistic gracious you know way of of international cooperation and money lending oh, with these man. countries not just screwing over small countries and it's like oh, this is sounding great so freeze like so what does what compelled you to leave the private sector to 
go in and take on all this responsibility and and do all this work. And he says, well, you know, I just I've been an armchair critic for too long and I don't like to be, so I want to get, get involved and do what I can. That's great. But he said, I want to be able to look at. I have a granddaughter. I want to be able to look her in the eye in ten years and say, I tried. I tried. <laughs> That's like great. Ooh. Most uplifting week of news ever. <laughs> Screw and have you heard of the? Um, I, I can't remember if it's a DARPA uh. systems robot, but it it consumes organic material to no. power itself. No. I wanted to bring this up while Please. we were talking about this because yes. um, it's called Eater. <laughs> Oh, we're gonna the, eat us. Uh, the energetically autonomous tactical robot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, RTI. Okay, so it wasn't dark. Wait, wait, wait. It was a concept developed as part of a DARPA military project. <laughs> I wonder if the guys that were that were first thinking this thing up on a cocktail napkin. Um, this is just nightmare fuel, and I mean that in in a, a literal and figurative sense because it's a steam engine that's fueled by biomass, my friend. Imagine what that smell. Oh, is going to be. Um, it says it. It has used fuel, gasoline, kerosene, cooking oil, chicken fat. That's mostly what humans are made of. <laughs> and a lot of the Mad Max films, they, they pretty much just have um, <laughs> that schmaltz, is the right? Yeah, schmaltz, yeah. Just, uh, they, they have Watertown, they have Gastown, yep. they have Schmaltztown. Schmaltztown. <laughs> What's that you just baked there, Aunt Penny? It looks delicious. Raisin cookies, Danny, mm. and they're just lovely. Do you mind if I try one while I sit back to listen to today's story? Well, you certainly can, and that's one thing about these cookies, ladies. As with anything made with chicken fat, it's completely digestible. Oh, Aunt Penny is right, ladies. You know that whenever you use chicken fat and you're baking or deep-frying, you're really deep-frying and baking. That's right, and it is so digestible. They don't sit in your stomach like a half-dollar piece. You can get 100 miles of driving on 150 pounds of vegetation, so probably much less. So, like a person to go to Knoxville? Yeah, you, 150 pounds is a lot. Now, that's veg. If it's oh, schmaltz, okay, yeah, we're that's probably right. getting down probably the road. Pretty, probably yeah. getting around pretty good there. And Penny always says, help yourself. Help yourself. Because if it's in chicken fat, it's saturated with fat. Yeah, if it's human so. schmaltz, it's also more refined, too, because it's boiled down. Oh, like it's more, no. Right? No. It's like a consomme. It's more, oh. maybe it lasts longer because it's more concentrated. Human. Consomme. <laughs> so I'm Brad Bouillabaisse and <laughs> you're West Worcestershire. Ooh, actually, that's a pretty. Cool I like name. that. Yeah, uh, we need to start a cooking channel yeah, now. Exactly. That, those will be our, our yeah, cooking base. What you can do with MREs and some oregano. Fantastic, Mr. Chambers. Mr. Chambers, don't get on that ship. The rest of the book to serve men. It's a cookbook. No! 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 If we are us, 
And we are we and we are all together, cuckoo-cachook walruses. <laughs> what makes us us to be so righteous about it? You know, I was just thinking about the loss of the white rhino and the trafficking of giraffes this afternoon, getting ready for this episode. And it's like, what gives us the right to think that we're any better or that we should have the, the upper hand in terms of morality? There was also a massive bust of shark fins recently. They had found like a container ship completely <sighs> chocked full. For that and, uh, oh, It makes me so mad. They just... They strip the fins off these sharks and throw them back in the water live which mm. they can't live they die they drowned it's so inhumane and absolutely atrocious but yeah like you said how, how can we you know sit on our kind of pedestal and look down on all these other creatures and it you know everything from like some of our favorite mammals and reptiles but also ai i mean we're going to have a real problem mm. if we don't kind of figure out our role in this living, breathing world that needs everything to coexist. Symbiotic. To global symbiotic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, a global, global symbiotic yeah. Um, relationship for sure. What the, what the hell is going on with people nicknaming their computer surveillance companies Skynet? And toasting them going live, you know, on that date, whenever it was, and 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 people are making these eater, you know, robots and, yeah. and Terminator bots and and mechs and things like that, and we're creating our own worst nightmares in AI for the purpose of our own destruction, wittingly or unwittingly, because wouldn't it be cool? Or somebody else is going to do it first. I better make the money before they do. Yeah racing to our own destruction cold war never ended so then why isn't anybody enacting gene roddenberry's version of the future like we're always <laughs> interested in enacting these dystopias wouldn't it be cool but what about the federation why aren't we enacting like a global peace federation and and, and a global star initiative we came to this future to find the federation in pieces Quadrants and sectors, planets and families, divided. So much uncertainty and disconnection. But the burn and the DMA have shown us that we are all connected. And we can overcome any challenge, so long as we do it together. The Federation is continuing to help impacted worlds recover. Many have since joined us. Their perspectives are helping us all see more clearly. Navarre is back. Teller Prime never left. And Dory is now in talks. And today, we greet the president of United Earth. To see society grow in a communal way, and that's such a taboo term, commune, socialism, you know, humanitarianism. All these things come with so much baggage now that people think that they're a bad thing. But truly, we weren't meant to live in these giant tribes like we're set in now. We, and I think we talked about this in like way back last year when we were talking Dawn of Man era. Uh, we, I think we can memorize about a, what like a thousand faces or something like that. Maybe it's ten thousand. I could be mistaken. It's either ten thousand faces or a thousand faces. 
And um, you made an excellent point earlier that I wanted to jump on about how there's something interesting in the novel that Arthur C. Clarke says. You never see a more advanced civilization taken over by a lesser developed civilization. It, it is it is quite impossible for an underdeveloped society to take on something more complex than they're capable of. So what you see is either absorption or destruction. And that, that's been true in history mm -hmm. time and time again. Yeah. What he is talking about is the implication of TMA-00 and TMA-01. Three million years, dawn of man, it was sunlight sensitive and buried underground. It's an alarm. And it was also buried in a very conspicuous way that was easy for us to find. So this is a calling card, it's a gateway. The scientists knew it and that's what ended up dis um, developing the discovery mission, but they couldn't tell anybody about it. And they reference a scientific study they did where they got a group of people together and told them they had made contact with extraterrestrials. And they even faked an encounter so they would think that they had met extraterrestrials. Mm. There was rampant xenophobia, mm -hmm. fear and violence, mm -hmm. and a complete breakdown on a, mm -hmm. a lot of the subjects. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's so crazy how he mixes the science yes. with the fiction mm -hmm. to a point where, yeah, sure, that, that probably actually happened. Yeah. In fact, you know, we probably did something like that mm -hmm. after Roswell just to see how a society would react to the implication of ETs. So he takes that experiment and basically shows how humans weren't ready. Mm -hmm. You know, we weren't capable of handling that to handpicking a small group of people that could work together very well. And this was, unfortunately, the crew that has all been jettisoned uh, towards Saturn <laughs> at this point. Arthur describes like how terrified the government was and how they were afraid that culture shock could destroy society completely mm -hmm. because of that. Yeah. Which is a you know the scenario that we we've played out you know, hundreds of times in culture since the late forties, how this could potentially go down. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting is that with AI, without encoding it or even potentially uh, unwittingly, if we do encode it with a uh, morality, we're still dealing with the fact that what we have learned since Internet 2.0, at least if not before, in this brave new Wild West, we start with the most base levels, the most base instincts of humankind. And then we kind of work down from there. <laughs> what, what could be more venal, you know? What could be more, you know, just uh, vapid? What could be, you know, more insultingly stupid and cynical? 
And with from clickbait to the way people get success with YouTube videos and other you know, things, you know, with with negativity and with spreading, and knowingly spreading fake news and fake headlines and things, then what we're really like we're coming to a point of possible real we are devo anyway <laughs> it's it's a real danger that if we're doing this to ourselves and we're we're also we're learning more of the feedback that our base nature is what gives us rewards and we've also got several generations who've been absorbed by me first or me only advertising sensibility it's a it's an easy hoodwinking situation it's a right it's right pickings we got to find out what our morality is collectively as a culture moving forward because we haven't figured it out up to now and in order to move it forward we got to start with the basics of what it means to be human what is it that makes us superior just being biological in general or being specifically homo sapien so modern terms where do we start Renee himself, Mr. Descartes, I think therefore I am. There's a general feeling that we'll have intelligent computers in 20 or 30 years, you know, as intelligent as human beings. Then the question arises, will they develop emotions? And the people are working on that. And perhaps the final question is, will the computer become conscious? You know, I think, therefore I am, I think. The Cartesian method of doubt, which is to break down larger ideas into smaller ideas, to process them and be able to sort through what works and what doesn't in in your philosophy, not just swallow it whole when it has weak parts to it, you know. Really break the spine of the thing and, and structure your philosophy accordingly. Starting with from the most basic term every time, which is that you exist. And the way that you know that you exist is that you're thinking about whether or not you exist. And you can't even necessarily know, even if you poke yourself, whether you're dreaming or if you're awake, but you do know either way that you exist because if you didn't, you wouldn't be thinking about it. You couldn't be a part of someone else's dream or consciousness because you wouldn't be wondering about that. You would be a, an NPC, a non-playable character in that scenario. We can talk about it on another episode, but holy mother of God, it's crazy. <laughs> they talk about after, you know, they uh -huh. figure about the ETs and they're like, what kind of civilization would be able to leave a beacon for three million years and have it still have power and all this? So we'd have to assume that there is civilization that's accustomed to staying around for millions mm -hmm. of years, whatever. And then it goes on to describe how some people thought they were probably humanoids and how the humanoid shape is the most efficient shape. Uh, so maybe there was like a slightly different facial structure, different digits or whatever, but you know, the head on top and the bipedal and whatever, that's optimal. And other yeah. people are like, no, that's absolutely crazy. Humans came to be because of all these like, slight little turns that they took in, in genetic evolution on Earth uh -huh. because of the environment they were produced in on Earth. So they start talking about how you know, start as like an organic being and then they figure out like we don't really need these organic parts. They start replacing the organic parts with 
robotic parts. Uh-huh. I'm like, whoa, okay, that's crazy. Uh-huh. And they're like, you know, when their limbs stop working, they replace them. And then when their other faculties stop serving them, we, we do like electronic input for visual and hearing and all this stuff. And then eventually the brain is replaced. But that's what actually happens with these aliens. So they evolve past a corporeal form. They go, they they create these ships that they're able to place their consciousness into and explore space. Whoa. And then eventually they're like, why are we in these like material things? Yeah. And they evolve again and become energy beings. Light man. Yes, light man. <laughs> or Q. <laughs> Do you know that light man and Q hang out all the time? <laughs> light man and Q, that's a TV show that's I would watch. Show, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Four partners in the hospital. Come on, Alex, you're a good cop. By the way, who's my new partner? We call him Yo-Yo. He weighs 427 pounds. He's a completely mobile computer, specially programmed for police work. Is he indestructible? We think so. Send in homes. including Holmes, must know his identity. Alex, no, don't! You're not a person. You're not going to tell them? In my book, you got to make himself a good cop. That's what I put in my report. But that, that's... Those are the aliens that set the monoliths. Wow. They become energy beings. And, and what they do is they plant these seeds all across the universe... They started civilization everywhere. He even ties the ring system at Saturn at three million years, and which is actually scientifically, theoretically yeah. possible. Um, th- they're ephemeral. They're mm-hmm. falling back into Saturn, and apparently they haven't been around for that long. They estimate it to be from about three million years man. ago, the dawn of man. Whoa! And what's really crazy is he does this whole thing, and I start thinking like, okay, so the beginning of the movie. We literally get a sunrise. We get TMA zero. It activates. And then on the moon, TMA one, the sun hits it. It activates. Uh-huh. He's behind Saturn approaching the moon that has TMA three on it. Uh-huh. And it's dark. He's on he's on the eclipse side of it. And he yeah. starts coming out and the sun is... Kind of like Cantwell cardboard monolith. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> the, the rising sun is such a repeated motif in this. I never really like tied it to Mm. the evolution of man and then like the exploration of man, the discovery, all this is, it's a new day, a new dawn. This is all like a visual kind of reaffirmation of the leap in the story. And uh, reading it just kind of like made me really put those connections down. That's amazing that you say that because that is exactly <laughs> one of the article I was looking on ties into that exact thing. And, and what Dave's going through is 
time and experience. This is a big part of Heidegger's philosophy. In being in time, which he wrote in early published in 1927, there's a whole thing about how you you're an inextricable from time. Your life is inextricable from its time. And even if you were to say, oh yeah, I wish I lived in another time, you would still be living that out in the real time that we age biologically and experience time with our circadian rhythms and our heartbeat and everything. Because we never are, there's never a static human is. There's never a static human being. We're always becoming, the way he put it. There's no fixed human essence, is how he put it. We're always functioning in our mind, either in the past or the future, usually. Very little in the present, unless you're a Buddhist. Buddhist, yeah. And your your body is always functioning in real time with growth and entropy. And, the and circadian rhythms, Circadian too. rhythms and the rotation of the earth sure. and everything. So there's no way to remove yourself from that, which means in what Dave is going through, by transcending time, he is kind of going... He's a pioneer, the Odysseus of the new realm, because there hasn't been what is, in essence, a time traveler until Dave Bowman in the year 2001. Which means that his experience takes him to a point which is inextricable from his travels in time. So not only is it a maybe a projection by the extraterrestrials of this hotel room and all the different points of view that he's having throughout yeah. his life and, and everything. But it could also be that through the mirrors of time that he's gone through, maybe he's experiencing time in this way that's unique to him, that's cubist. And I, I could believe that in the um, kind of like the quantum realm of possibilities where there's a infinite, mm -hmm. you know, amount of universes. Yeah. And, everything is has to be it has to exist yeah <laughs> so maybe what he's experiencing is it could be introspective it could mm -hmm. be something that through like the shifting of his space-time environment yeah because he's actually being forced into like a almost timeless state maybe it's mm. introspective in a way that like his mental faculties have <laughs> yeah projected these images onto him but I, I actually rather like the idea that the aliens are capable almost like in um ai the mm -hmm. film where they choose a form that's more appealing or like more registrable to the user yeah. and they can tell that through either like telepathy or through some kind of other means but yeah so they're they're reaching out to him and they're generating a feedback based on his experiences. Yeah. Was, just, was, was humane, right? Because a version of that to say that the extraterrestrials are act, behaving in a humane way. Right. right? They're, they're at least they're behaving in a respectful way. Yeah. It's interesting because when he's coming up on the monolith and the craft, again, I'm referencing the novel here, but there's an acknowledgement of the craft from the monolith. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't necessarily care 
but it does it is expectant uh-huh so it's like even if you miss yeah it's been here for three million years that's that's not its purpose its purpose is to wait yeah. until it is unlocked uh this gateway the the starlink mm-hmm. um i believe is that's what he refers refers to it as starlink starlink amazing cool. And it could be, you know, the, of course, the way Ridley describes it, that it could be that the aliens are, are afraid to reveal themselves in their true form, lest Dave just have a heart attack and die in his cage before they have a chance to study him. Is he called a Stargate, maybe? Maybe he calls it Stargate. Satellites on the brain. Oh, yeah, I love this. This glorious apparition. Bowman knew it was a globular cluster <laughs> a globular cluster how cool he was looking upon something that no human eye had ever seen save as a smudge of light in the field of a telescope yeah, he could not remember the distance to the nearest known cluster but he was sure there were none within a thousand light years of this solar system so he, this is mm. inside of the stargate he, he took the pod in oh yeah it was upon him with unexpected speed, and he saw it wasn't a world at all, but a gleaming cobweb of latticework, metal, hundreds of miles in extent, grew out of nowhere until it filled the sky. And uh, across its continent-wide surface were structures that must have been the largest cities, but they were spaceships. Wow. This was the spaceship dock. Giant orbital parking lot. <laughs> what? This is absolutely insane. Um, many different designs, faceted crystals, slim pencils, ovoids, discs, every type of UAP, UFO that has ever been described in you know, human existence. And another thing in the E.T. introspective that I thought was cool is they kind of got to that evolution thought via the idea of interstellar travel and how impossible it really is Mm -hmm. talking about how the discovery the fastest ship that they've ever created you know it it would take thousands of years just to get to alpha centauri you know our closest yeah so they basically assume that it's within the solar system but then the idea of like what if they're not bound Mm -hmm. to the same laws of physics that we are and then they mm-hmm. kind of make that leap into their corporeal forms being shed. Yeah. And being able to travel essentially at the speed of light, maybe faster through warm wormholes, you know? Yeah. Through twisted yeah, why parts not of space. Yeah. 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 They they wouldn't be in any danger from radiation or yeah. gravity wells or anything. I mean, you could just truly travel any way you wanted to. Sure. And what's really crazy is I've I, I keep listening to these really existentially troubling space documentaries. There's a whole series of them. Some of them are more on thought experiments, but some of them are more kind of talking about the beginning of the universe and all the different theories that kind of derive these very different ideas of how our universe is going to end. And I think that's very interesting and very troubling at the same time we um we have very little information that can concretely point us in one way or the other but all of them are definitely crisis provoking <laughs> i guess literally that's catastrophic <laughs> uh, so i just can't imagine bowman being plunged into this terror <laughs> yeah 
I mean, the, unknowing the globular clusters, as beautiful as they are, that's a pretty terrifying ride. I mean, it, no organic being could exist in a state like that. Yeah. They even talk about how people that are taking long space flights, and I mean, ISS, if they're up there for even just a few months, it actually causes your brain to swell. Mm. And you get extra fluid, and it takes so much longer for it to return to normal. I know I've, I've heard them talk about kind of ocular um, degeneration that happens because without gravity to sh- help keep the shape of your eyes, you know, they can deform and flatten and it can cause sight problems mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Humans are not meant to travel through interstellar space. We're not designed to. Maybe not meant, maybe a, a, the inappropriate term. We're not evolutionarily capable of traveling through space right now. I think that's where Bowman is. He's experiencing things that no other human could. And then he's actually going to get the opportunity to evolve. Yeah. And become, you know, a, a transient yeah, being. That's exactly. In his new body. The new body is predictive of the needs that he holds. We have evolved that way ourselves. Is it possible that the AI will and that we in our servile form? Because, I mean, by this point, right, the, if we keep going the way that we're going now, the, 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 the central computer will determine whether or not you have enough credits to purchase your cigarettes or your pop tarts, or whatever it is that you have to pay a little bit extra for, because it's you know for a sin tax or Commodity, whatever. Yeah. Then you know you will have to perform a certain task because, of course, not only is your your banking uh, controlled by the computer, but so is your 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 library, your access to all media, books, the, the encyclopedia, your it's, TV shows, it goes your music. Back to the Matrix. They're just gonna hey, can we plug in for a little bit? And take yeah. some of your power. <laughs> so so you would like to learn about history so you want to read a poem so you, you want access to any of these things that the publishers of these things are too too greedy to allow the the possibility of one rogue copy getting leaked out so they they completely shut down any opportunity for it to be published or distributed anywhere which of course leads to piracy so <laughs> a self-defeating proposition in there mm. but anyway in in this case scenario will the computer then then say, all right, you're allowed to do that, or I will, I will allow you the heat and in, in your remaining uh, residual heat allotment for the day to take a bath, if you will put in this new RAM cartridge for me, or will you install this new haptic actuator so I can have you know some sensory thing going on with with a with an arm with a hand, you know I can I can scratch my plugs or yeah. whatever you know, yeah. I think that'll come way sooner than I think they'll just take whatever mechanics they can. We need to stop making articulated <laughs> robots. Yeah. No more opposable thumbs, clamps only, <laughs> and don't make them touchscreen sensitive. Right. <laughs> if we're going to imbue these things with morality, the the morality of the concept of the body has to do like um, what's his name, Gerard Merleau Ponty. 20th century philosopher. The body is their general medium for having a world. Sometimes it is restricted to the actions necessary for the conservation of life. And accordingly, it posits around us a biological world. 
At other times, elaborating upon these primary actions and moving from their literal to a figurative meaning, it manifests through them a core of new significance. Wow. This is true of motor habits such as dancing. Sometimes, finally, the meaning aimed at cannot be achieved by the body's natural means. It must then build itself an instrument it projects thereby around itself a cultural world. Okay. The manifestation. If we're, as humans, manifesting our own bodies and extending our own bodies, which, listen, we did with basic tools long before we had watches and back scratchers and fingernail clippers. But now, <laughs> with these monolith <laughs> cell phones in our pockets, mm-hmm. we talk about the ultimate body extension. Yeah. How, how, how much are we using our thumbs compared to everything else? It is taking care of so many different other appliances at this point. The consolidation of every kind of milestone technology, you know, the ability to keep time, photography and videography, GPS, and then finally, World Wide Web. Access to all information that's published as long as (laughs) information continues to be on the Internet. All it needs is a knife. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. A little, little Swiss Army thing comes out the mouth. It has a flashlight, you know, corkscrew. Uh, a flashlight, too, yeah. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is... The ultimate all-in-one multi-purpose. Terrifying to have a thousand years of technology immediately consolidated into a pocket device that also includes a digital assistant that may or may not listen to every year utterance we think we're so sophisticated i remember being in college with this one kid who who was convinced that he was smarter than everyone every great philosopher who ever lived because he was born in 1987 and therefore he was smarter because he had more knowledge at his fingertips yeah that 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 made him smarter by osmosis yeah (laughs) which of course can show yourself to be a dumber person than my i absolutely love the comics and memes that I see about, you know, if I went back in time, I'd be able to astound everybody. And it's this guy standing up on a rock and it's like, and we have electricity, but how does it work? Uh. <laughs> exactly. Everything that we have is predicated on what came before. John yeah. Reese Davies put it all best in his recap of our Dawn of Man episode. I know. A few weeks Thanks. Ago. Thank you, John. You know, we are the most privileged and pampered and overeducated generation to walk this earth. And yet, the, and we have this extraordinary benefit of an internet that will give us instant access to every spoken word, every majestic thought. And all we can do is write spiteful things in commenting on other people, people that we've never heard of. But it's so crazy to, to, to think that way when we know for a fact that everything we have is, is based on, on what came before. And to then be in a position where we have all of this knowledge at our fingertips, as Notorious JRD was saying, and we choose to use it to just spam each other with nonsense and hate mail. Yeah. And more importantly, the tribalism that that constitutes is the same clickbait, you know, base Machiavellian or, or well let's just say exploitative 
based nature. We're still the same people in the George Eliot books that were superstitious about that woman on the hill <laughs> who isn't married a second time. Definitely a witch. Yeah, you know, it's like <laughs> we're still the same people who are gossiping about if the, you don't yeah. need any evidence of, for me telling you that. Just look at these crazy evidence? people in Congress. who are <laughs> Just look at some of these nuts who've been elected to Congress recently. But you actually literally believe this? You know, it's just so off the rails. Insane. It, it, this is who we are. We're still the same homo sapiens. As J.R.D. said, we reached our peak. <laughs> Thousands of years ago. Yeah. There is a belief that, for instance, by the end of that ice age, and we are the only species of hominid left, that human intelligence was at its peak. These people were not stupid. They were hardened, capable people of surviving in incredible circumstances. But believe me, they dreamed. The more pessimistic philosophers have always kind of, they, they greet other humans as like my human suffering, my brother in suffering. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Who, who's that philosopher? Oh, goodness. Um, yeah. Was he, it Kierkegaard? Kierkegaard. Yeah, it was <laughs> it Kierkegaard. Sounds like Kierkegaard. But yeah, it was, it was essentially like the human race is terrible. We're, yeah. we're never going to develop yeah. past this point. And it's unfortunate because there's so many people that don't want this, but they're not the majority. We're constantly just killing each other and taking resources away. But that's away the thing. We are the majority. And that's the great trick, isn't it? Like the, the, I guess that is right. We the, are the always led to believe. The one that rules, you yeah. know. And because the majority is, is civilized and doesn't want to go walking around with a big stick, it's just kind of overrun by these chest thumping warmongers the, the, they keep their head down because they're civilized yeah. and they don't want to create a stink or yeah. add to the stink but at some point you do have to stand up and be counted against it because for george w bush for all his sins did use the term silent majority because there is a silent majority of, mm -hmm. of decent people out there we're always being told and tricked and coerced into thinking that we're not because it's better for us to be you know, angry consumers that, that are too blinded by the here and now today's nonsense to plan ahead for a better future. That's stupid. I'm going to cut that out. It's like running for office or something. <laughs> but speaking of Kierkegaard, you know, the beautiful thing about Kierkegaard is his sense of humor. I mean, his his whole thing was... Kind of like a self-deprecating... The best way to go through, you know, the ridiculousness of existence is with a laugh. There was a point in one of the novels where I believe the leader of the guard is talking to, I think it's Vimes, and they're, they're talking about how balance between good and evil and the reason it's cyclical is because people that want justice, they want obviously to squash any kind of wrongdoing or injustice but once they do there's not really anything they can do to prevent it from happening again and people that want to do those kind of things plan and they survive and they're kind of always there you can't just have a constant generation of good people mm -hmm. because you need bad things to happen for the good people to be you know inspired to rise against that which i thought was pretty interesting stanley kubrick himself one of the quotes that's always stuck with me is that an artist doesn't want utopia 
an artist needs conflict and a storyteller doesn't want utopia a storyteller needs conflict you know even if you're Ch- Chantal Ackerman doing John Dealman tw- Avenue 23 or whatever with a day in the life of a woman at home baking bread and doing the the chores and everything it's still it's an existential <laughs> experience to to watch but it's not mundane there's you can't do a actual mundane story or an actual mundane piece of art that yeah falls flat there no you need conflict and all of life is that i mean we're only alive because of electricity we're only having this conversation right now not not to mention running the mics and the computers and whatever you're listening to us with but we need electricity to pump our hearts and remain alive which is nothing but rubbing together that's friction that's thousands and millions upon millions of little bits of friction happening all the time what's going on outside you know these vines are taking over trees and bugs are eating other bugs being eaten by bats and the cycle of life continues and there's chaos disharmony and murder (laughs) in the jungle even the stars were a mess But Werner's right, and <laughs> do we become part of this chaos? Do we do we contribute some order to it? It sounds like we're spiraling out of chaos. The whole world is literally afraid that we're not going to be able to get a hold on. And we're talking within our lifetimes. So it is literally the most intense time to be alive in human existence. Not that it wasn't during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Not that it wasn't during World War II. And not that it won't be in another 60 years. But right now, we're definitely at a crux with a lot of decisions to be made on which future we're going to end up with. You know, if you you do end up having that mentality, then you can go with the Kierkegaard Hmm. thing and just, you know, do the best you can for those around you. Or or Mr. Hinton, where he's just like... um I'm retiring. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, I've solved a bunch of problems. So He's got it's... students on the phone right now that are texting, leaving him voicemails. He's like, ah, one more Bahama mama. <laughs> then I'll answer the phone. I wonder if he's worried about any kind of retaliation from Alpha. I wonder. It was, it was commendable to actually you know, leave the company. So I'm sure he had some wild NDA. Yeah. You know, I mean, hubris with a capital H. Look at us humans. That's humans. That's why when the Anunnaki come back this year, whenever Nibiru is close, we're gonna be slaves. Just get ready for it. They're gonna watch Jersey Shore and be like, look what we did. And of course, Hal actually said sort of heuristic algorithmic h-a-l we, yes going back in time to the 1600s so here's what what we're basing heuristic experience that the computer has that we have and what's the difference between us and them with this all ideas come from sensation or reflection let us then suppose the mind to be as we say white paper void of all characters without any ideas how comes it to be furnished? Whence comes it by that vast store which the busy and boundless fancy of man has painted on it with an almost endless variety? Whence has it all the materials of reason and knowledge? To this I answer in one word, from experience. And that all our knowledge is founded, and from that it ultimately derives itself. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's... We are introduced into the world 
tabula rasa that was his thing blank slate and then it, that's the whole like implication of informing from your surroundings environment mm-hmm. nurture versus nature so your environment gives you experience and demands of you to accept it and i think we're so many different cultures still have so many different ways of of coping with those we are going to experience that friction being disaffected when we're all stacked together vertically as as jonathan miller puts it much better than than heidegger ever did because he was you know profound at an early age but also an awful terrible nazi shit. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll stick with dr jonathan miller atrocious crime is not characteristic of modern times it is not as i think uh, the right uh, in both in this country and in England would say, it's a sign of the deplorable permissiveness of modern times. It's something which seems to come up in cities. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't happen in simple rural communities. Um, Once you have large cities, once you have large cities which conceal anonymous strangers, the possibility of this sort of violence seems to be built into the alienated condition of of, uh, very large urban conglomerates. And I think that uh, it wouldn't have happened perhaps in the London of 1550. Mm-hmm. Um, but once London had begun to grow, once large cities do begin to grow and strangers begin to multiply and people are unknown to one another and communities are no longer integrated and people don't face one another in, in complicated and dutiful ways, yeah. then it's possible for these sort of murders to break out. People often wonder about this and they talk about permissiveness. I get very, very angry when the right wing talk about this being due to the laxness of morals, when all around them are the engines which create this. If you insist on building apartment blocks which go 32 stories into the air, where you pack people into anonymous boxes so that you insist on their mutual anonymity, it is hardly surprising that they no longer care one for another in ways which normally bind a community together and prevent Mm -hmm. murder and violence. Murder and violence is on the whole a feature of fragmented societies where people are not bound to one another in dutiful relationships. According to the poet and philosopher Ifyanyi Minkiti, In Africa, there is a saying, I am because we are. The individual flourishes because the community flourishes. And because the individual is the one speaking, this isn't an example of fascism or communism, but rather the individual acknowledging that he or she needs the group to survive and thrive. So we need the group. To your point earlier. Yeah, we've got to change the way that people approach the idea of small communities. Definitely. I I think... Especially, you know, there's nothing wrong with commodity trading, but being self-sufficient and having an abundance to use for commodity trading, I think, would be ideal. And if that were the case, everyone's being fed. You know, if somebody gets hurt, there's somebody that can take care of them. There's somewhere for for them to go. They're not left out on the streets. The only way we got here was through community and through civilization. Yeah. And we're so quick to dump it for the individual desires, whims, and... No man is an island. I wish I were. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Too often we say, if I can only have my little space, you will find trouble there, he says. We need the drama of other people in our lives. Yeah. And to some degree, that's true. To some degree, we don't... That's This was written before social media. Um, <laughs> but also, I think in community, it's about seeing other points of view. I have but one man as my guest tonight, but he's in fact many men. If you've got an hour or so to spare, I could begin to sketch in a detail or two about his career. He's played vaudeville and designed sets and costumes for opera. Producer, novelist, playwright, raconteur, my quote. I'm betrothed to laughter, the sound of which has always seemed to me the most civilized music in the universe. Ladies and gentlemen, Peter Ustinov. <laughs> You work, of course, do a lot, a lot of work, and have done, and still do with UNESCO and, and UNICEF. Yes, particularly. Yes. Um, looking at it from the outside, it's difficult, I suppose, for the outside observer to understand, comprehend, oh, how effective these organisations are. They always seem to me to be great big corporate organisations, in a sense, that, that, that are too unwieldy to do much good. Is that a fair assessment? No, I wouldn't have thought so. I think that, of course, they're very easy to criticise and very easy to destroy and it's a miracle that they exist and people often criticize the united nations in general because they get annoyed with what transpires in the security council or the general assembly in new york which is really like quarreling about something goes on in a shop window i don't see how these things could function differently once they're democratically constituted what unicef and unesco and the world health organization and such things do is what goes on inside the shop which people don't usually see and which are conducted, obviously they, they are open to criticism, anything that size is. But they do an extraordinary amount of very valid work. But when you also realize that uh, the amount of money spent by nations for children every year is roughly equivalent to what they spend on armaments every hour and a half, then you realize how much these things are necessary. And if you actually go into the field and see the receiving end, you're struck by how very important this work is and that certain illnesses like glaucoma have been practically eradicated that uh, there's an enormous water program where they're actually digging far deeper in certain parts of the world where people have never had the technical knowledge to dig deeper and it's I think uh, of course absolutely essential and very very worthwhile I'd be much poorer in myself if I didn't do a little bit of that whenever I could afford to. It's very important to you, quite obviously. Oh, it's more important than anything but, in its way. But you don't find it uh, depressing, given the, the, the statistics that you've just uh, told me about the imbalance between the amount we spend on children, say, that's only one example, and the amount we spend on, on the ability to destroy ourselves. Does not closer contact with, with this part of your work, does it not make you even more pessimistic about, about No, I think pessimism is completely out of date. I think that's a a romantic indulgence. I don't think anybody can afford to be pessimistic anymore. I mean, there's so much that can go wrong. Optimism is the only thing possible <laughs> anymore. If you see me, if you see my point. I've always thought that an optimist was a person who knew exactly how sad a place the world could be, and a pessimist, a man who finds out anew every morning. That's the real difference. Yes. No, I'm obviously optimistic because you simply have to be. It's an obligation to be optimistic. I will dedicate the philosophy of this episode to the late, great Dr. Robert B. Shields, my philosophy professor in college. And, uh, here, here. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess our main hope is that uh, we can find a, 
a collective morality to encode that we can all agree on. I actually just want to be uploaded into one of those cool spaceships. (laughs) 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 I just, uh, I can't imagine going through the shedding of your corporeal form. From Clavia Space, this is Brad. And I'm Wes, signing off. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Goodbye.